Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. This is also a good time for me to apologize for the fact that the cat like showed up enough for all of us to almost crack up, but didn't actually make any noises. Talking the whole time to do that. I am a professional. Thank you very much. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Weeds. I'm your host, Dylan Matthews, and today I'm joined by Weeds co-host, Dara Lind. Hello. And Vox Policy Editor and Weeds Guardian Angel, Libby Nelson. <laughs> that is a real title <laughs> upgrade. Uh, happy to be here. It's, it's a great title. We're very proud of you. Uh, and today we're talking about baby brains and early childhood development. So this is going to be an episode of two studies. The first study came out last week. I wrote about it. It was about the effect of direct cash transfers on infant brains. It was part of an experiment called Baby's First Years. The experiment is pretty simple. So researchers gave one group of mothers $20 per month for several years and gave another group $333 per month or $4,000 a year over the same period. This started in 2018 and is, is still ongoing. And so the goal is to study the neurological and other developmental effects of large-scale cash deposits. So to see if giving money to families had a direct effect on infant brain development. And the study found that babies who received bigger cash transfers showed more high-frequency brain activity. There are some caveats that come with that that we will get into in the episode. Um, but another recent study showed that universal pre-K, another different but, but often touted intervention for young kids had a negative effect on academic outcomes for kids. Uh, so the study found that kids who attended pre-K programs had lower scores in reading, writing, and science once they hit sixth grade than kids who didn't attend pre-K programs uh, or didn't attend the universal pre-K program in Tennessee, the state that they're studying. And the gap increased as the kids aged. So starting in third grade and getting worse by sixth grade, kids who attended pre-K or universal pre-K continued to decline in academic scores compared to kids who didn't. And the other notable finding is that pre-K kids were more likely to skip school or get into disciplinary trouble than kids who went to private pre-K or, or had parents watching them. So it's important to go over these studies, figure out what they mean. Libby, can you walk us through the pre-K study and, and what your takeaway from it is? And then I can talk a little bit about the baby cash study. So this study... Uh is a much bigger study than some of the previous pre-K studies uh, that we've seen. And it's really high quality, which is why it's really important. It's, it's fairly randomized. What we've seen in the field of pre-K research is some of the most influential studies about pre-K and the policy debate over early education were of relatively small programs, um, the Perry Preschool Project and the ABC Darien Project that found really large effect sizes. So basically, Anything you might want to measure on, on what happens to people after they are no longer children in pre-K, these studies found that there were really huge 
and significant and long-lasting effects. Then there are studies that look at bigger programs. So these were mostly small programs uh, that found these large effects. They were pretty specialized. Where I think this new study fits in is a growing body of research that scaling something like that up um, to certainly you know, a, a large enrollment size, or even in this case, a universal size, which means anyone who wants it can, can attend, is really difficult. And those effects don't necessarily persist. So, I mean, what, you know, what, what can we take away from this? I think one takeaway is that um, I don't think that the pre-K has to have that level of life-changing intervention in order to be worth it. Um, I think that's, that's something, you know, we should maybe just bring some like realism to this discourse of should a year when you're four have to change an entire, you know, the rest of your life to be worth doing. Um, on the other hand, it does cast some doubt on the sort of growing consensus that early interventions are the best. The best time to change kids' lives is like before they're five. And almost anything you do at that point is going to have a really long tail effect through the rest of their lives, because um, a lot of the research finds that that's just not how it actually ends up playing out. So let's dig into the, the pre-K study first, and then we can we can come back to the, the baby brain study, um, since they're, they're measuring related but sort of different things. So yeah, as you were saying, Libby, this seems like a, a in in the pre-K discussion, it seems like a, a sort of divide between pilot programs that are incredibly promising and then what happens when you actually try to scale it up, that you have these very small, very expensive uh, trials that go back to the 60s and 70s, Perry, Abbasidarian, and there have been people very publicly championing those. James Heckman at UChicago, who's a Nobel laureate, has has been sort of the most vocal person on this and arguing that sort of the earlier in a kid's life you can intervene, the more important things are. And so you need really high quality daycare uh, even before kids hit three or four, like uh, almost to birth, if not not pregnancy. And yeah, I, I share your view that looking at this sort of as implemented, is it's certainly possible to me that an absolutely ideal pre-K program relative to the alternative is way, way better. But in a world of actual governments that actually have to implement these things uh, in reality. And I think Tennessee is a good example because it's a it's a pretty red state that has nonetheless done this policy and and funded it the way a red state would fund it. Uh, you do not at all see the the outcomes that, that you see in these smaller pilots. And some of that's a sort of nothing scales problem, but some of it also is just, yeah, uh, replicating the things that were good about the small pilots seems really, really hard. I do understand the just because this study doesn't show everything that previous studies promise doesn't mean we should jettison the policy. But like if you're doing this sort of rigorous study of a policy intervention, you're doing it for one of two reasons. You're doing it either to determine should we continue doing this thing or more frequently to, to determine should we do more of this thing? And like if you can't answer the second question just by studying a particularly high quality pre-K, then it does call into question just how much you can even try to impose broader pre-K policies and how, you know, is this really just a matter of you can you can either have a very high quality program or we don't really know if this is going to be any good for your child or is there any kind of forward momentum on this? I don't expect the forward momentum on this issue, frankly, is going to be particularly changed by this study. Um, maybe that's wrong, but I think there are sort of two purposes that pre-K serves, right? Like one is academic. It's the first theoretically academic year when you're like four, three or four. Usually these are 
universal for four-year-olds and um, DC is universal for three-year-olds, but that's extremely, extremely rare. So it is, you know, you get into basically academic school earlier and are we seeing long-run academic benefits? There's also the question of like, the idea that like four-year-olds will need somewhere to go during the day while their parents are at work uh, is not going to go away. And I think is something that we've seen a lot and heard a lot of, you know, especially the last couple of years with the huge and massive and ongoing childcare issues the pandemic presented for folks. I come from sort of the education policy world as a journalist, and a lot of the discourse there was about like, wow, this is a really life-changing academic intervention that has really long-run effects. It does make me wonder if there should have been a little more skepticism of some of this. Like, imagine kindergarten didn't exist. A fun fact, um, kindergarten is actually not compulsory in most states in the U.S. Uh, Imagine kindergarten didn't exist and they were going to roll out kindergarten and they were like, okay, like what you do in kindergarten ends up having this like massive effect on the rest of your life. And I think we would maybe be a little more skeptical of that of like, okay, but there's like broader society. There's your economic status. There's the other 12 or 11 years of schooling that you have in the middle. Like, does it really make sense that this is going to have that kind of impact? And so I I could see a couple of things. I could see a shift in the rhetoric around how these programs are discussed away from kind of the transformative educational potential and toward the sort of childcare economic angle, which I think is really important. And I expect we're going to talk about it. The other is, you know, I think it is also a reason to continue thinking about ways to improve this, you know, to think about are there ways to to make pre-K higher quality even as you scale it up. So just to, to bring the other study back in here, I think it's it's kind of interesting to compare them because the cash study is is comparing something that you might be able to use as like a benchmark for pre-K, right? So if we're spending X amount of dollars on on kids under the age of five, we can invest that in setting up pre-K programs or we can just send the money directly to parents. And those aren't always the sort of margins on which these decisions are being made, but it's kind of the margin that's being made on in Build Back Better that Congress is going to spend some amount of money that seems relatively constrained on a bunch of stuff. They want to do pre-K, they want to do child tax credits, uh, and deciding how much goes to each is like a, a very real live question right now. And so the study on uh, on cash was looking at EEG results, which measure brainwaves uh, in, in all humans, but in this case in, in infants, uh, the idea being that you can't really give an IQ test or any other standardized test to a one-year-old and get uh, very interesting results. Um, and they found more high-frequency brain activity in babies that got uh, substantial cash, so $4,000 a year as opposed to 20 bucks a month. And Almost as soon as the the paper went out and and I wrote a piece on it, uh, there was a lot of skeptical pushback, not from neuroscientists as much as statisticians, that it's a significant study, but it's a few hundred people. And it's hard to find big effects when you're dealing with a sample of that size. And brain imaging turns out to be just like kind of noisy and likely to give you results on something, even if nothing's really happening. Um, and so we'll, we'll link to some of their critiques in the show notes since they're, they're fairly technical, but it did get me to thinking of like, how would you go about comparing a a policy like the child tax credit that just expired to something like funding state pre-K programs? Because to some degree they can accomplish similar things. You can use your child tax credit to pay for nursery school or daycare or or other things, but they're also like the amount of money per student in pre-K is much, much higher. Um, it's just that you're channeling it towards something very specific. 
Yeah, I think that's, I mean, a really interesting way to think about this that is kind of brought about by the exact like specific circumstances we're in, because at most points in sort of this pre-K discourse that's been going on for, you know, over easily over a decade, a couple of decades, at least the the trade-off has not been between like a very clear cash proposal or a very clear aid proposal and pre-K. Instead, it's been like, well, pre-K is something that like we can do and maybe Republicans will do and some red states have done. So like, why not? Let's do it. Um, But you're right that like in this moment when there's a really actually clear, like you can prioritize this or you can prioritize that effect, you know, it's, it's, I think appropriate to ask like, what is actually going to do the most good? And it's fair to use this, to, to, to use this new study, um, to, you know, really question the priors as to how much pre-K might actually help. This kind of brings us back to the question of like, what is the status of research on early, early childhood interventions, right? Because we've kind of laid out this dialectic where like initially it was a, you know, a child's life is like a ball and the harder you throw the ball, the further the ball is going to go. And like, if we're consistently getting higher powered or more representative studies that show that that is not so much the case, then like, how can we even make these evaluations about whether there is a worthwhile trade-off in terms of, you know, investing in education versus investing in direct cash? I mean, this feels fundamentally like almost a question about like all education policy that I've been increasingly <laughs> wrestling with as I've as I specialized less in education policy is like, to what degree are we pulling this lever because we can pull it as opposed to it's like the yes. best thing we can actually yes. do. And I think when you're looking at education policy from like background for what you're looking at is other education policies. If it's like, do we fund pre-K or do we fund community college? Like, I think like that's one question. Like, do we fund pre-K or do we fund something entirely different that's going to make children's lives and families' lives better? I think it's actually like a much more interesting question and is maybe the one upside of doing like massive omnibus bills with a lot of unrelated policies thrown together is it does lead to these really big questions about like, how do you make the kind of society that you want? When I think that it, it's also, we're, we're comparing sort of two programs for children against each other and one broader thing that, that Build Back Better is trying to remedy is that there's a huge age bias in what the, the U.S. government invests money in in general. We invest a lot in, in K-12 education. That's on, on the order of hundreds of billions of dollars a year. But we spend more on Social Security and Medicare. Those are becoming bigger and bigger parts of the federal budget as time goes on. Even Build Back Better has uh, home care provisions that apply to people with disabilities, but especially to people uh, who are elderly, who often have disabilities. Um, And so one sort of macro thing that I I think Build Back Better is trying to do is to retarget investment downward in the age scale without sort of threatening the the benefits that uh, seniors have because seniors vote and and they care a lot about, about Social Security and Medicare. But in some ways, like, I think that makes the question of which to prioritize like more important because it, it puts it in a context where these are together fighting against the status quo of investing very heavily in people toward the end of their life and not investing much toward the beginning. And you don't have to be like a diehard Heckman guy to think like maybe we should be investing a little more in, in uh, helping people under the age of five. And I think, I mean, Dylan, this is a a good point you raised in your newsletter and not to get all like money can be exchanged for goods and services about it, but like you can, (laughs) you know, if you are doing some kind of cash transfer to young families, like that does also put the option of better childcare or a higher quality pre-K in theory on the table for, for more people. I, the question would be, you know, how do you get the cost to pencil out? But 
if this should raise some questions about like, like if the program is studying universality, then the question you're really trying to answer is like, what's the case for making this available to everyone and sort of endorsing that everyone, you know, should be doing it. Like if there is a pre-K program and you need somewhere to send your kid and that program is free, you are probably going to default to, to sending your kid to that program. You know, there's, and there's a couple of questions like, should that be available to some degree to whom it should be available? And like, how does it actually compare to the alternatives? And if the alternative is, you know, okay, well, we have a tax credit and we're going to figure out another way to take care of our child with some of that money maybe that does nudge you a little bit toward thinking that that higher degree of choice that you have with a program like that is a little more compelling than it might be if it's like the evidence is absolutely overwhelming. The pre-K is great for everybody. And what we should be doing is encouraging all parents to send their kids to it, you know, absolutely, no matter what. We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we're going to talk a bit more about childhood development studies and also just on a more theoretical level, ask, are we even studying the right thing here? We'll be right back. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Welcome back to The Weeds. I'm Dylan Matthews. So today we've been talking about two recent studies about childhood development and Something I've been wondering a lot here is whether these are measuring what we really care about. So I think in the baby brain study, this is the most obvious question that like if you look at floor speeches in Congress about from people saying we should like invest more money in kids, no one says it's really important that the EEG scans of these kids like look really good when they're one year old. Like we care about that because we think it's a proxy for something else like their intelligence down the line, their ability to do well in school. 
And in that case, it's it's a new experiment. We will know things about what this does to kids when they're five as time progresses. I would not be surprised if we get studies on what it does to, to kids once they're 55 when we're all in, in nursing homes and reading about it. But it does sort of raise questions with this and with, with the pre-K study since sixth grade outcomes also aren't necessarily what we care about. And even like sixth grade misbehavior isn't really what we care about. Like I like punched a kid in the face in fifth grade and that was shitty and I shouldn't have done it, <laughs> but I don't think it ruined my life. Um, and did it, did it ruin the other kids' lives though? <laughs> no, she's, she's great. Uh, I was, I was trying to avoid saying it was a girl. It was a whole thing, but <laughs> see, <laughs> so you, uh, you weren't threatened from middle school on with the, with every failing going on your permanent record. Right. I was not being tracked by some researchers to see oh, if this was yeah. a flaw in the way the Hanover nursery school was educating its students based on my behavior years and years later. And I should emphasize decades before now, I'm not a threat to anybody. Um, but Libby, what are the conversations like in education policy since a lot of it is just like finding proxies like this and, and, and struggling to find the variable that we should really care about? This is a huge issue in education because so much fades out. Um, it really seems like a lot of all kinds of educational stuff you can do basically has a pretty good impact through the end of, well, what for me was the end of elementary school, which is sixth grade, a medium impact sometimes through middle school. Moving the needle in high school is really, really hard on anything besides like high school graduation rates, uh, which is the one place where there have been, you know, really significant changes. Um, you see this in test scores, like third grade test scores will go up. Eighth grade test scores will go up a little bit and high school test scores um, are much, much more likely to remain flat. There's just, you know, there's a lot going on in your life uh, besides just school that, that happens. So what we end up looking at, lifetime earnings is probably the proxy that some of the most interesting studies um, have looked at. I'm thinking especially of studies on teacher quality, which have been really controversial in their own right, but have found that having a better teacher as opposed to a worse teacher has an impact on how much you're earning. I think it's like 25 or 30 um, when you're like fairly a little bit into adulthood. At the same time, again, like what you're earning when you're 25 or 30 is still not a lifetime outcome. Um, and I think this all kind of gets back to, you know, I think a, a kind of central question here of like, what is, what is education supposed to do? Which I think <laughs> I've mentioned on every Weeds episode that I've been on because they all kind of end up winding back there. It's like, is the purpose of education to create people who have higher skills and command higher earnings and therefore make more money? Or is it to do something else? And part of the discussion about proxies is like actually a discussion about outcomes um, and about what we're trying to do. And an interesting thing about this is even if you find interesting proxies that appear to deliver actual results and you then you like talk about them out loud, they sound a little bit crazy. Like it sounds a little nuts to be like, you know, to know if like the preschool I attended is working. <laughs> you should look at what I was earning when I was 25 uh, and control for every other possible variable in my life. And I'm like, I feel like you could control for every other possible variable in my life <laughs> and the identity of my preschool. Like you still might not have controlled for the right things if you're tracing that back to the identity right. of my preschool. It seems a little unfair to Ms. Perkins. Right now, the most articulated alternative to, like, we are trying to educate people to build their skills and make them succeed in the 21st century marketplace is an emphasis on social-emotional learning. With the under-articulated but implicit purpose of, like, we are raising children to be good members of a society and to take care of each other. 
it's not just that we're working on proxies in that regard. I don't even know that we have the proxies nailed down yet. And frankly, the fact that this pre-K study, like, not only showed negative academic outcomes, but also negative behavioral outcomes in terms of, like, skipping school indicates to me that we really don't have a handle on that. And that means that when we're debating, should should school be trying to produce this outcome or something else, we don't even know how to get to the something else if we were to decide that that's what we wanted. One thing that strikes me in all of this debate about proxies is um, how it sort of individualizes the benefits of education. Uh, because I think at, at, the, at the higher education level, I'm actually pretty comfortable saying, and this is a, a major point in the student debt debate of like, do you get a college degree for yourself or do you get a college degree for society? And if the benefits of the degree are mostly accruing to you, is it right for you to incur debt and to have to repay that debt? And I think that's like a very live mm -hmm. debate right now at the higher ed level. I mean, certainly at the like undergrad, postgrad level. What's interesting about trying to look at something like lifetime earnings as a proxy for your like third grade teacher is that also kind of takes education that we understand, I think, more to have a collective benefit and then to try to sort of individualize mm -hmm. how we measure it in a really interesting way. And obviously, like, individuals are the ones who are attending school and you got to find something to research if you want to research these, like, really, really interesting and important questions. I think one way that I've started thinking more and more, especially about this early childhood stuff, is, is talking about the benefit to kids and talking about the long-range effect on kids even the right way to be thinking about all of this. Like I would say, you know, I, I know as somebody in my mid thirties, I know a growing number of people with kids, all of whom think that having pre-K for three and four year olds that's free is basically like the greatest possible thing in the world. And I feel like most of them being like, your child might be ever so slightly more likely to misbehave in sixth grade as a result would not be like, oh, there's then never mind. We should stop doing this. We're going to yank our kid out. You know, I think I think some of this is about, it's really, we talk about it as education policy and we think of education policy as a proxy of like long run economic policy, but I think we should think about it a lot more as sort of a short run economic policy, which is family policy. I mean, that makes sense. At the same time, it does seem that in practice, the most vocal supporters of pre-K respond to studies like this, not with even if this is true, it is more important to see this as a family policy that allows parents like greater flexibility and, you know, greater financial security. In practice, what you end up seeing usually is we are sure that there are benefits to kids. You're just not measuring the right <laughs> things, which gets back to the question of proxies, but also makes it a little bit hard to actually isolate out the family policy debate because as hard as it is to change people's priors generally, I think it's it's especially hard to tell parents it's okay if you're doing something that might negatively affect your kid a little bit. They're going to say, no, of course, every choice I make is for my child. Yeah, I think sort of Libby's point about we're proxying two different results is really important. And I think it's especially important for pre-K. Uh, child tax credit, you're sort of both trying to help the parent and the kid, but their their interests are fairly aligned. And there isn't sort of a hard gap between how you're helping the kid and how you're helping the parent. You're helping them both afford food and pay rent and, and what have you. With pre-K, it's childcare, and it's also meant to have some kind of skills building component. And I think part of what's scary about the Tennessee study to me is that it suggests the skills building component could actually go in the other direction. And you, you saw this in, in Quebec, too. I was talking about a, a friend who's who's married to a Canadian and sometimes thinks about moving to Canada. I don't want to use his name, so let's call him Zach Beecham. Um, and so Zach Beecham <laughs> often talks about 
uh, moving to to Quebec and uh, wanting to benefit from Quebec's uh, free daycare center. And I uh, troll him by sending him studies showing that it will turn his uh, delightful baby into a violent criminal. Um, Studies as discussed on a previous Weeds White Paper segment. (laughs) And his point, which I think is a good point, is like, you know, my my wife and I have to work. Uh, We we have to have some way for us both to have careers and pay for our family and like have fulfilling lives for ourselves, uh, which I think is like a real thing. It's not like selfish to want sort of a meaningful career for yourself um, instead of just sort of being uncompensated childcare. And that's like maybe worth it for for some small effects on behavior or, or things. But again, when it comes down to it, it really matters what you're proxying for. And like, if it actually turns his infant into like a mass murderer, which seems doubtful, uh, like that would very much not be worth it. If it like marginally increases her risk of like cutting classes of 15 year old, that seems probably worth it. I feel like there is such a cult of good for the children in political discourse that it's very difficult to like, even though I think rationally that might be a choice that a parent would be and arguably should be able to make in practice, that is not something that, you know, any politician is comfortable defending. I think it might be healthier to say, hey, there are things that are going to be a little bit bad for your kids, but that are going to be better for you as a family. But like, I don't even see anyone publicly articulating that. What I see is people saying, obviously, the this is the best thing for your kids as individuals. And what is important for ever for like the family unit is treated as synonymous with what is best for the kids. I'm actually not sure about that. I mean, this is really an argument, like this is an argument about daycare, qua daycare that's been going on for like three generations. And it doesn't like it comes up when there's a discussion about should the U.S. be giving more money to fund childcare or should it be giving money to parents who can use that either to stay home or to send their kids to center-based care. But it's not preventing that discussion or those those policies from being proposed. I mean, first of all, yeah, I think the the idea that this really calls into question, like, does pre-K build any kind of lasting academic skill is, like, it's alarming. And it's not great that it's like you're going to an extra year of school. It doesn't appear to be doing you any good whatsoever. Like that's not good. And I don't want to sugarcoat over that by being like, it's fine. There's a lot of other benefits. That said, pre-K has existed a little bit in this like hypothetical, magically bipartisan in theory space that then doesn't actually translate into real policy. And I think Like, if anything, this might sort of yank it out a little bit from that space, because if you are disinclined to support a government expansion of education for an additional year, which is essentially Mm -hmm. what we're talking about and what the what the objections are really about, they're not about like what pre-K is going to do to your kid. It's about we are expanding the government's role in education down a year um, in the same way that we would be expanding it up two years if we were to do free community college that's universal. There have been red states that have tried it anyway. Obviously, this is how we got the Tennessee study. But saying, oh, red state governors love this has like, that's been going on for like 10 years. It has not produced a national investment in pre-kindergarten. And so maybe it's just having been an observer of this for a long time. I don't really see this. I think the discourse changes only if the advocates change it. And for very understandable reasons early elementary educators and, you know, and principals don't want to be like, you know, what's good about school? School's a place where your kids can be so that you can earn money and do other things in the same way that college doesn't want to be like, you know what college is for? College is for having you earn more money later in life. Like there are other benefits. Um, But I think that's part of why this is not, 
in the discourse. And it's always about like the, the educational benefits because the people making that argument are the people who are really, really deeply invested in the educational benefits and are less prone to be like, you know what we do? We provide a place for kids to be. And that's a good thing to have in the world. This is a good point, but it also leads me to like the broader question, which also comes up whenever we discuss like the Supreme Court on the weeds of like, if in reality, it is more important for pre-K to be daycare than for pre-K to be like pre-kindergarten. And we were to honestly discuss that, would that have a detrimental impact on the quality of would-be pre-K teachers such that it would be even worse for kids going in? Like, is it important for those, for like the continued recruitment of pre-K educators that there be this noble lie about shaping young minds? I mean, I would also say, I don't think we should give up on the idea that pre-K could be good. This was a huge issue um, in the childcare proposals in Build Back Better, and they kind of like stole the thunder on this, but it's a huge issue for pre-K proposals too, is can you do more and better simultaneously in like the world and the market that we have? And this underscores that that's hard, but like, I don't want to be one of those people who's like, oh, well, there were only these findings because it wasn't high quality. And if it were only high quality and universal, then obviously we would see the benefits because it becomes like, well, we've, you know, it's it's, it's never truly been implemented. So how could we ever measure it? But that said, like, it's worth it to continue, you know, it's worth it to continue trying to figure out, like, if there are ways to scale quality. And I don't think it's, it's a time to just completely throw up your hands and be like, well, it is what it is. The trade-offs are what they are. Let's, let's move forward from there with that knowledge. One of my takeaways from this research uh, over the past week, and also just sort of trying to think about it, is that pre-K is still a nice idea. It's it's good to have a place to put kids, but I care vastly more about getting an expanded child tax credit into whatever Build Back Better mm. thing gets passed than expanded pre-K. And I was curious if you both are, are around that spot or, or if you interpret it a little differently. I'm curious still into this, like, was that your position before? I feel like that was your position before the study. So oh, very much just so. reinforced your priors. And it's fine for priors to be reinforced. I just, I just sure. want to be clear about that. I mean, I think the pre-K study definitely made me think, it definitely strengthened my belief in that prior. But my previous belief was like, these are both unambiguously good things, but it's a tough world and we should do the one I like more. <laughs> uh, and now it's like, <laughs> one of these is like really murky and weird. <laughs> I think I'm basically there. I had also sort of been there already, though, for a couple. I mean, I think the the pre-K, we could do another hour on the pre-K policy (laughs) design, which we're not going to do. But I think, like, there were always some questions about, like, how much of an effect it was going to have, if it was going to actually be able to encourage states to create universal programs. Like, I still continue to think states should continue trying to create universal pre-K programs. And to be clear, universal doesn't necessarily mean compulsory. It just means like, if you want to send your kids there, you certainly have that option. Um, But I agree, you know, I think when we're in a universe where there is a very, very clear policy trade-off here, this, if anything, just kind of adds to a a growing heap of evidence that there is something that has very clear and immediate short-term results and something that like maybe has long-term results and maybe doesn't. And we still just don't know for sure. Yeah, I mean, as the only overlap between this Weeds panel and the Weeds panel where we discussed the role of climate policy in Build Back Better, my increasing belief on Build Back Better is that these are two fairly easy policies to have the trade-offs discussion about of all of the things within that bill. And that in particular, talking about short-term known benefit (laughs) is difficult when you also have a climate policy component. 
Um, so it does like it would be really nice if, say, Senate procedure were not such that Democrats were trying to pass all of their big ticket policy items into a single bill. And therefore, we could have somewhat more targeted, somewhat more apples to apples discussions about various things. That is not the world in which we live. And therefore, I can't particularly say that this changes the needle for me on Build Black Better because it still seems like a black box locked inside Joe Manchin's head. Well, on the on the note of a black box locked inside Joe Manchin's head, <laughs> we should probably take a break uh, before moving on to our white paper segment. So uh, when we come back, we're going to keep talking about babies, but specifically about what having babies does to voting. So stay with us. Support for the weeds comes from Hydro. Finding the time to exercise can be hard. But with the Hydro Rower, finding time for a 20-minute full-body workout can be a piece of cake. Hydro is a state-of-the-art, low-impact home rowing machine that's actually designed by rowers. Hydro caters to all fitness levels, and their classes are taught by Olympians and world-class athletes alike. Eric Maxwell, from the business side of things here at Vox, got to try it out. Here's what he thought. The Hydro definitely felt like a nice workout. It felt challenging, intuitive, it kind of felt natural without being too strenuous. It was just nice to have a menu of options to find something super customized and just make it feel fun. This spring, you can join the growing rowing community at Hydro. You can head over to hydro.com and use code WEEDS to save up to $400 off your Hydro. That's H-Y-D-R-O-W.com code WEEDS to save up to $400. Hydro.com code WEEDS. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. We are back. Uh, this week's white paper is called Parents, Infants, and Voter Turnout Evidence from the United States. Uh, a great place to get evidence from. Uh, is by Angela Cools, which is also a great name, uh, from the Department of Economics at Davidson College. So this is a cool study in that it like raises a problem that I didn't know was a problem and then offers a solution to it. Uh, so it, it looks into, using some uh, sort of fairly reliable survey data, how often uh, women with infants or men with infants uh, vote and finds that each of them are less likely to vote than uh, similarly aged race people without children. Um, so women with infants are about 3.5 percentage points less likely. Men with infants are about 2.2 percent uh, percentage points less likely. And this doesn't prove it's causal, 
uh, that that having a baby is causing people to be less likely to vote. Uh, maybe you just have a baby because you don't like voting and wanted to take up all that voting time with a baby. Um, but <laughs> she does a, a few robustness checks that <laughs> suggest that it has some causal component and that having a baby is really hard. And so people stay at home rather than turning out. And she also looks at what happens when a universal vote by mail system like those that have been in place in Washington uh, and Oregon due to this effect and find that it it reduces the gap and makes it easier for parents of infants to vote. So very nice, very straightforward paper. What did you guys make of it? Uh, I, I, too, appreciated the straightforwardness of the paper. I mean, I, I understand that it is more work than meets the eye to disaggregate. Like, are you just the sort of person who doesn't like to vote? But I will, like, give a particular shout out to the instrument of looking at people who had a baby the next year, because obviously yeah. those are not people who are like, you know, obviously those are not people who are disinclined to have children. They just hadn't yet had it. And noticing that there is a big difference between voting the year before you have a kid and voting when you have an infant. So props to that. But yeah, I mean, it really it, it ties back even, I think, more neatly than we anticipated when we selected this white paper to the stuff we were talking about in the last segment of the fact that parents' lives are changed a great deal and like constrained a great deal by having tiny people at home. It also raises the question for me of like what this does for the debate over early childhood policy, because if there's a constituency that is actually being a little bit politically underrepresented that is super relevant to this debate, I do wonder if that is part of what skews the age curve of policy toward the Social Security and Medicare side of the scale rather than the universal pre-K child tax credit side. Well, not just, I mean, not, not just the age curve there. There's an amazing um, sort of age curve in the responses that shows that the effect is like greatest, obviously, for kids under one, but there's a slight depression of turnout up until they're five, which is like, this whole paper, I think, is a little bit an exercise in proving something that people already know, but I think it is useful to prove things that people already know. I like, thought I knew that pre-K was good. I know, this is what I'm saying. Like, nobody is going to be like, my God, having a baby gives you less time to do other things. I have never, no one has ever mentioned this to me before, but I do think it's like, it's useful and valuable to actually prove out those impressions, even if they seem kind of obvious um, and and sort of make funnable. And that's not a word at all. Even if they seem obvious and um, able to be ridiculed in in the moment. Well, especially because it just like it surfaces things that you know. Okay, yes, if you think about it deductively, then of course you're going to say this is what the effect is likely to be. But like. It wasn't like we were deliberately tap dancing around in the first two segments the common argument that you should have universal pre-K because it's good for democracy because it reduces the extent to which parents are going to be too constrained. Oh my God. Like <laughs> we have reached synthesis. We have reached synthesis on this episode. But that's the thing. We we didn't have to invoke that argument because that argument isn't a thing that exists. It's not something that comes to mind. So like surfacing this as a finding and saying, hey guys, what if? We actually thought of having a young child as a democracy issue. And like, what if our voter turnout conversation also acknowledged the family policy components of like some people having a harder time making it to the polls than others? I, I want to emphasize we've referred to this as straightforward a few times. But by that, I mean, it is not like densely enmeshed in a complex theoretical debate that I uh, was not familiar with and had to enmesh myself in to understand it. It's a lot of careful data work going into a, a easy problem to understand in Grok. And I really think the, the effects of universal vote by mail are important here. 
that I know there are some sort of disability advocates who don't like universal vote by mail and want there to be sort of accommodations in person. And, and that makes sense and seems like a reasonable thing to do. But the system in, in Oregon and in Washington and Colorado seems to work pretty well. It kind of cuts the Gordian knot of disputes over how many precincts are open, where people have to go to vote. It elides the, the voter ID uh, issue in a, a, a nice way. And it seems like impossible to get enough national consensus around this one idea to like write a law mandating universal vote by mail. But it seems like it would it would resolve a lot of voter purge, uh, sort of voting place closure, voter lines disputes that we've we've seen over recent years. Yeah, I mean, really, a takeaway here is like very, you know, and I, I, I agree. I don't want to say it's straightforward in the sense that, like, oh, this is this is not a good piece of research. It's sure, actually like sure. also really well written. It's easy to follow, which is just a nice thing to yes. see. Um, but you know, it, it plays into this idea that, like, why, why is our electoral system premised on making voting a difficult chore? Like, this this doesn't actually get into the contributing factors very much, other than having a child, obviously a very large contributing factor. But is it like? would a Saturday election day make a difference? Is it that our election days are on work days and it's like, you got to pick your kid up if you have care? Is it just that bringing a baby anywhere in public for a long amount of time can be a pain? Um, but I think, you know, it, it should just sort of add to a pile of evidence and also to just sort of a, a general principle for which evidence is not necessarily the primary factor that like, it's good to make it easy for people to vote. And it's good for voting to be something that you can do without incurring a lot of hardship based on the other many responsibilities you have in your lives other than being a citizen of a democracy. Yeah. And just as a general point, like burdens fall unequally. The axes on which those burdens fall more than others are not always obvious, nor are they like necessarily something that is going to come to mind just by lot. You know, like even if you could logic yourself to it, it is not necessarily going to be something that people designing the policy are even going to think about, much less like affirmatively endorse. Nobody was like designing voting laws so that it would be harder for parents to vote, right? Quite the contrary. If you, you know, if if they were selecting who would be more easily able to vote. I think a, a lot of state legislators would say, well, we want to make it easier for parents to vote than childless people. Sure. Um, and yet this is where we are because unintended consequences are a thing. Unintended consequences are a thing is, is a lesson for every weeds, but especially this week. So that's all for us today. Thank you so much to Libby and Dara for joining the panel. Our producer is Sophie Lalonde. Libby Nelson, in addition to being on the panel, is our editorial advisor. Amber Hall is the Deputy Editorial Director for Talk Podcasts, and I'm your host, Dylan Matthews. Do not forget to sign up for our newsletter at vox.com slash weedsletter. That will be in your inbox this Friday. Another thing coming this Friday is an episode about what's going on in Ukraine. Yes, the weeds is going global. We'll talk about the long-simmering tensions between Ukraine and Russia, what diplomatic solutions are available, and more about Putin's motivations behind his recent moves in the area. Uh, we'll see you then. The Weeds is part of the Vox Media Podcast Network.